0: 19 years of age, uh, the band that I was playing in, Broken Silence, was, uh, I guess you could say kind of a rising star. Our star was on the ascendancy. Now, you know, compared to real celebrities and all the YouTube stars you have out there, I mean, we were nothing. Or nothing, okay? But, but for our little corner of the world, uh, when our music was on heavy rotation in the local radio stations, and there w- literally wasn't a week that would go by where uh, some guys or some beautiful young women would come up as strangers to us and ask for our autograph. You know, that's a pretty heady thing when you're 19 years of age, you know, and you're driving around and you hear people listening to your music and you're giving autographs. That can kind of lift your ego, right? It'll do it for any of us. I remember one uh, evening, or one weekend it was, I was working at the diner that I worked at, called Rose, Rose City Diner. There used to be one in Pasadena, there was one in Hawaii. It's like a, one of these 50's theme diners, a lot of fun. And I was just working my afternoon shift, and some broken silence fans asked to be seated in my section. Now, I knew they were Broken Silence fans because they had the tall tale signs. They had a kind of an autograph book, they had a camera, and they were all giddy and staring at me, right? So I was like, oh, this is nice. And you know, it fills my ego, and here's these beautiful young women who are looking at me, and so I go over, take their order, and walk away, and they're laughing and giggling, and I'm like, oh, okay, this is really nice, and that's not how it goes. And so I deliver to them, a few minutes later, I bring out the, you know, the tuna, melt and tuna melt sandwich, salad, and Diet Coke. And they look at me and they say, are you, are you Rick from Broken Silence? And I say, well, yes, I am. And they say, well, can, can we have your autograph? So they hand me their autograph book. So I sign the autograph and say, can we take a picture with you? And and so I'm just eating this up because here's some women I've never met, you know, and they're good looking women. And yeah, my wife, by the way, loves when I tell these stories in the first hour, she got a kick out of it because um, she knows the truth, right? Anyway, so so I'm taking pictures with them and I'm just eating up this adoration and it was one of those moments, right? I had become a Christian recently where the Holy Spirit, he just did a McFly, right? You remember that, right? Hello, McFly, are you not seeing the reality of what's happening right now? Do you really think these girls, these women are interested in you? Not in the slightest Do you realize the reality? You just brought them a Diet Coke and a tuna melt sandwich, and now they're asking for your autograph. Does that sound like it should make sense? These young ladies have an image of who you are and has nothing to do with you. They're worshiping something they think you are. They don't care about you. And in that moment, the vanity of this world and the foolishness of the human heart became really clear to me because it was absolutely right. I couldn't have thought of this. It must have been the Lord, but that was absolutely right. Here I was just a few minutes earlier arguing with Javier the line cook about who put the napkins above the the pancake batter that fell in, and now I'm giving them a tuna melt sandwich and they're asking for my autograph. This is not reality. These young ladies had created an image of somebody they thought was standing before them that had nothing to do with the person who was standing before them. And I realized in a way, That's kind of the same dynamic that we're seeing in the second commandment when God says, don't make an image of me because you're not going to end up worshiping me. You're going to end up worshiping an image of what you think I am and that's not who I am. Now, if you're new, we just started a series called Jesus and the X, and what that means is Jesus and the Ten, standing for the Ten Commandments, how Jesus is the fulfillment and transformation of the Ten Commandments. Last week was Commandment 1, And, and Jason Oaks did a great job, and really, Commandment 1 really was the clarion call, wasn't it? That there is no other God. There is only Yahweh, the Old Testament name we use for God. There is only God. And so... Whether you are a Hebrew in 14th century B.C. tempted to worship Molech or the Baals and and depend upon an Asherah pole, or you're an American in the 21st century A.D., and you're tempted to worship your career, your relationships, or your finances, and you, you depend upon maybe a stock ticker, we are all looking for a God to deliver, to supply, and to save. That's just the reality. And it doesn't matter if you conceive of yourself as a religious person or an irreligious person, it is the impulse of human beings to look for a savior. Uh, Otto Rank, who is Sigmund Freud, some of you know Sigmund Freud, Otto Rank, he was one of, a good friend of Sigmund Freud, Otto Rank, he said, at the end of the day, mankind is a theological being. A profound statement. What he was saying was, men and women need something outside themselves to make sense of what's inside themselves. Michael Crichton, the author of the Jurassic World series, he, he echoes a similar sentiment when he says, no matter how much you deny it, man's need for salvation is irrepressible. So if the first commandment that we looked at wanted to make it very clear that there is no other God, the second commandment is intrinsically tied to the first. Because the first commandment was basically getting to the point is that you can worship the wrong God. The second commandment is saying, You can worship the right God in the wrong way. And so last week was an issue of priority. This week is an issue of practice. So I'm going to make three points as we jump into the second commandment in verses uh, four through six. I'm actually not going to talk about the jealousy of God because uh, Jason Oaks did a great job on that last week. So if you want to learn a little bit more about the jealousy of God as it relates to his holiness, I really encourage you to listen to Jason's sermon. It's on our website last week. It's the last half of his message. So I'm going to make three points today. Number one, the command to worship truly Number two, the concern about worship that is false. And then number three, the completion of the commandment in Christ. So let's look at the command itself. The command to worship truly, Exodus chapter 20 and verse four, the Lord commands, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, let me stop there on that first one. I recognize that there is nobody in this room that is tempted to make some kind of carved image and bow down to it and worship. Most moderns are not tempted in this way at all. And the reason I say most is because if if you are part of some Eastern cultures or Asian culture or Polynesian culture, if you grew up in that like I did, idols and gods are everywhere. I mean, we had them in our houses, we had them in our restaurants, they were in our shopping malls, and you'd even stumble across them if you're out hiking in the jungle. Uh, so I realized that for most Westerners, though, this isn't a temptation, but for some of us, you can relate to that. But most people read this command and they go, it doesn't make, there's no traction to my life. There certainly were to the Hebrews, though, weren't there, who were very susceptible to the temptation to make an image of their deity because all the nations around them had their deities personified in some kind of idol, some kind of object. Particularly um, the Egyptians and the Canaanites who were the immediate neighbors of the Israelites, the Hebrews, their gods were particularly fierce looking. If you know anything about Egyptian or Canaanite mythology, you know that. And it makes sense when you live in a world that is, quite frankly, scary and out of your control, full of uncertainty, it makes you feel somewhat better knowing you have a very fierce, tough-looking God in your corner. So it makes sense that they would make their gods look the way they did. They needed that reassurance. Try to imagine... You know, some young Hebrew kid playing with his Egyptian or Canaanite friends, and they've got their, you know, their deity trading cards, like like we used to have baseball cards or Pokemon cards when you were a kid, and you know, your Egyptian friend, he throws down Ra. And this Ra is a massive looking the god of sun, a, a built man with like kind of a hawk's head and the fires of the sun coming out, and that's pretty intimidating. Then your Canaanite buddy throws down a, a card of Ishkor, and Ishkor is this scary looking reptile with snake hands and everything and not to be outdone, somebody else throws down a Baal card and it's this huge bull with horns with blood all over it. And the Hebrew kid throws down his Yahweh card and it's nothing, there's nothing on it. It's blank completely. Even the name Yahweh isn't written out, right? Because you can't even say the name of God. So you've got Yod, Achet, Ava, Achet, and nothing else. You imagine the Egyptian and Canaanite kids are kind of snickering like, "What? that's your God? You imagine that kid going home Dad, How come we can't have a God like their gods? That's exactly the point. Our God, you can imagine the father saying to a son, cannot be compared to any other God. Our God is not like their God. He cannot be imagined. The blank little playing deity card that the Hebrew kid thinks it signifies nothing actually signifies that Yahweh is beyond everything. And that's why it has to be blank. Think of what God said to the Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 40 verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Isaiah 46, 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike well the implied answer obviously is no one so how can you think to make an image of this god now we we need to be clear not all, Some ancient cultures, uh, but not all ancient cultures believe that the deity lived in that physical object, whether it was bronze or stone or gold, okay? The Egyptians, for example, did not believe that Ra or Osiris or or lived in the object, but they did believe that the object itself served as kind of a, a touch point, a point of connection, a, a, where heaven and earth connected, where they could connect with their god, and and truth be known, actually to manipulate their God. Now, the ancients may have done it with actual physical objects, but contemporary spirituality does something very similar, doesn't it? Whenever we try to fashion more of a a user-friendly God, a God who can be adopted or adapted to suit our preferences, we are involved in the same kind of deity manipulation as these ancients were. Whenever we believe that we can fashion the God or whatever God we choose to do our bidding in some way, whether the aims and ends are our own financial success, our own psychological equilibrium, make our things work out, make my kids turn out okay. However we try and do that, we are not much different than these ancients. Just we don't have the physical objects that support that kind of thinking. At a, at a very subtle level, it's kind of a a business transaction. It is a thinking that says, if I do X, God is obligated to do Y. Now, it can be, we, we, we aren't so profane if you've grown up in a church. You aren't so bold to say that, that I do this, God does that. But they're all over the place. If I say the prayer Jabez daily, then God will increase my influence. If I make my choices by WWJD, then God is going to make things turn out. If I follow the 40 days of purpose, things are going to be great. If I find the right parenting method, my kids are going to turn out the way they ought to turn out. See, at the end of the day, that's not trusting God, is it? Trusting God regardless of the circumstances, knowing He is good and faithful and will be so to me regardless of what I see. That's not trusting God. That's not obeying God who is sovereign and worthy of our obedience. That is actually using God. If I do this, then you are obligated to do that. You see, what's wrong with that fundamentally is it turns a personal relationship that God desires into kind of like an economic transaction, a formula. And God will not be reduced to some kind of formula or an economic transaction. The problem with reducing God into some kind of image is that it is an in- inevitably an attempt to constrain or conform him into some kind of preconceived notions that we have of what he should be like, rather than letting him be who he is. See, the reason the second commandment exists is that God cannot be distilled. And and in the context, the ancient context, he cannot be distilled into some finite, visible, localized, materialized object. He is God, after all the infinite, invisible, immutable, sovereign, self-sustaining, self-sufficient creator of the cosmos. How are you ever going to capture that in a picture or an image? To do so, no matter how grand the attempt, would diminish his glory. And so God says, do not make any image at all. And so the first point of the command is that God wants to be worshiped truly, not as or I or you might conceive of him or want him to be. God says, I want you to worship me as I am. And so, friends, this is the first important question that we have to ask as we read this passage. How do you know who God is? What is your source of knowledge about God? How do you know this being? Is it your own personal thoughts? Is it your friends? Is it stories you heard from your childhood in Sunday school? Is it what your professor taught you in history of religions class in college? Is it popular culture? Is it a combination of all these things? None of them are sufficient. Surely some of them are absolutely wrong. How do we know who God is? Well, some of you already know the answer to that. There is no greater greater revelation of God, of himself, than he has given to us in his word, the Bible. That is why we study it, that is why we read it together, that is why we memorize it together, that's why we pray through it, that's why we we sing about it, we memorize it, we internalize it, is because it is God's self-revelation to us. That's why the Bible is so important. It's because it is the way by which God has made Himself clearly known to His creation. It's not because we worship books. We worship God who made himself known through a book. Or if you're here a couple of weeks ago, through 66 books, actually. Friends, and if you're looking for a church, if you're visiting churches, this is why you need more than biblically themed messages preached at a church. You need the Bible preached at a church. Because if you go through the Bible simply grabbing biblically-themed messages, you will inevitably pick and choose the things that fit your paradigm or the things you're comfortable with, and you will craft of an image of God that is not Him. And depending on your personality or your experience, you'll find that that God resembles similarly yourself. When we have a God that transcends any conception we would actually have of Him, He is astoundingly beautiful and amazingly offensive to the human mind because he's God. This is why you need the Bible preached, not simply biblically-themed messages. Friends, our image of God is so critically important so that we worship him truly. That's the first point. The second point is the concern about worship that is false. And so we see that in verse 5. So let's go back to the text. Exodus 20, verse 5. And you could say, this is the reason God says, I don't want you to have these images. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. The second point reminds us of a fundamental truth and why God is so ardent that we worship Him truthfully because whatever it is we worship, we will inevitably serve. That's really important. Whatever you worship, you will serve. You Dylan fans know that, right? What do you say? You gotta serve somebody. Friends, imagine how stunted your Christian life will be, how deficient your service for God and to God will be if you have an image of him, anything less than what he actually is. So, so imagine if your image of God is that he exists to make life easy for you, then you will not serve when it is difficult or inconvenient because it just doesn't line up. If your image of God is that he exists for your success, then you will not serve when it costs you too much. Do you see how these things feed one another? If your image of God is about your own personal growth, then you won't serve when you're called to self-sacrifice. If your image of God is that he exists for you rather than you for him, you will not serve unless it benefits you. That's exactly the opposite of the way of the gospel. And so our image of God directly impacts the way we will live and serve our Lord. And so we have to ask another question then. Do you have an image of God that's worthy of God? Do you have a vision of God that simply blows your mind and is strong enough and robust enough to get you through the difficulties of this life? You see, the the self-made images of God may get us somewhere in the short term because it helps us out, but in the long term, it's not big enough. It's not robust enough to get you through the dangers, the perils, the seriousness of this life. And that's why God says, I don't want you to have images of what you think I am. It is not enough for you. It is a command that stems from love for His creation. Friends, just look at the Bible at the image of God that God is always trying to portray of who he is. Let's take a look at just three passages. I mean, we could look at dozens and dozens, but I want to take three passages, one from the first section of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. If you heard two weeks ago, we talked about that. The uh, first five, Penta, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Mar- uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then a passage from the historical books to see that the image is the same. And then finally a passage from the prophetic books to see how the prophets saw God first one is from Exodus chapter 19, the very chapter we're studying together, a few verses before the Ten Commandments are, are given to them. Listen to what it says. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Wow, what a cool, what, how cool that would be. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Why? Because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Wow, is that your image of God? Yes, your boss is a Jewish carpenter kind of thing. Yes, he's transcendent, but do you have this imminent vision of who God is before you have this this? Excuse me, I got that backwards. Do you have this transcendent image of who God is before you have this imminent buddy image of him? Look at the second one in 1 Chronicles 29, 11 to 13. Yours, O Lord. Oh, and look at this, the the labeling, of the, the, the tons of adjectives is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. The guy can't say enough. All this is yours for all. Not some. All that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Verse 12, both riches and honor, they come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. I think it's obvious I was emphasizing a certain pronoun there. Did you catch it? That prayer made it clear it's all about him. It actually only comes to us when we are responding in our thanks to him. And then finally, the prophets, the prophetic books. Look like at Daniel chapter 4. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. He will never be elected out of office, there will never be a recall. He is the King of Kings, and his kingdom endures forever from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We could just, I could give dozens and dozens and dozens more of verses that are painting the image of who God is. With this being true, why would we want to reduce him into a some kind of servant, errant boy for our desires kind of God? When we trade His sovereignty for His service, we think we're benefiting, but we lose out in the transaction because we don't have this kind of king. We actually have just an errand boy who does what we want him to do, gets us what we want. And God says, I will not be reduced to that. I love you too much to be reduced to that in your mind. Now, I don't, I don't put long quotes up very often, but occasionally I do because I want to capture the thought very well. And so I, I read a book called um, Losing Our Virtue by David Wells. And I'm just going to tell you, this one hurts. Okay, this one just hurts. And, and here's the quote, because he wrote 20 years ago about the state of the church, and I think he's even more prophetic now. This is what he writes. What is uppermost on Christian minds today is not the moral fabric of life, but how to cope with their wayward personalities, self-doubt, the stages of life, marital stress, as well as the calamities like job losses and the soaring cost of college tuition. These are the things that are intensely real to Christians and that drain their psychological energy. However, while these things are not inconsequential matters, they are not burning moral issues with which the Bible is concerned. What is central to the Bible is the true and the right, sin and grace, God's wrath and Christ's death. What is central to so many today is simply what offers internal relief. Much of the church today, especially that part of it, which is evangelical, is in captivity to this idolatry of the self. This is a form of corruption far more profound than the list of infractions that typically pop into our minds when we hear the word sin. We are trying to hold at bay the gnats of small sins while swallowing the camel of self. It is idolatry as pervasive and as spiritually debilitating as were many of the entanglements with pagan religions recorded for us in the Old Testament. That this devotion to the self seems not to be like that older devotion to a pagan god blinds the church to its own unfaithfulness. And then listen to this line. The end result, however, is no less devastating because the self is no less demanding. It is as powerful an organizing center as any god or goddess of the ancient cultures. The contemporary church is whoring after this god as assiduously as the Israelites in their darker days. It is baptizing as faith the pride that leads us to think much about ourselves and much of ourselves. (laughs) Ouch. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> You can see why he probably doesn't sell that many books as he should. <laughs> I don't know about you, but it's, it's right there. It is right here. How often I, I say, God, why don't you do this? Or why don't you do this? God, why? Or I challenge his notions. If God is real or all these thoughts that we hear all the time, it's because we are bowing down to an idolatry, an image that we've made of God. So what do we do? (laughs) What are we going to do? How do we worship God truly? If that's the command, how do we worship God truly? How do we avoid all of our private idolatries about Him? Thankfully, thankfully, the answer is quite simple. Instead of making God into our image or into another image, the answer is being remade into His image. The good news is that God has already made this possible by bringing his son, Jesus Christ, into the world and bringing us into a saving relationship with him through Christ. And that's our last point this morning, how Christ is the completion of the second commandment. Friends, here's an amazing and deep mystery. When God first created the world, what does Genesis 1 say? He made man and woman in his image. What in the world? We were made to be like God, to reflect His glory. This is another reason why God says, you can't make images. I already made an image of myself, and it's you. Why are you making an image of me? I made images of me. It's called humanity. We're not allowed to make images of God. We're commanded to be images of God. But our ability to do this, friends, if you know the rest of the story of Genesis, has been destroyed because of sin. Our ability to reflect his glory, his compassion, his wisdom, his justice, his virtue, his mercy, his his goodness, all these things that humanity was made to be a reflection of, is radically defaced, as if a kid took a crayon to your favorite baseball card or your Pokemon card and destroyed it. In our fallen and sinful condition, we're no longer able to reflect God's image. But that's why God sent Jesus Christ, to repair the image of God in us, which is why the New Testament says of Jesus in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God in 2 Corinthians 4. He is the true image of God in Hebrews 1. Jesus is the exact representation of his being in nature. This is why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He is that point of contact. He is where heaven and earth meet. But we don't manipulate him for our ends. He manipulates and changes us to be conformed to be like him. In order to come to God in true worship, we don't have to come through idols. We don't have to create images. We just need to go through Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. And when we come to Christ, the Bible promises that God lives in us through his Holy Spirit, and he works in us day by day to repair that image so we can reflect the very image of God himself. So, the second commandment is commanding us to worship him truly, but the reality is the only way we can do that is through Christ, because sin prohibits us at every step of the way. But Christ perfectly imaged God, and he invites all to image God through him. In writing to the Corinthians, let me end with this Paul was thinking about this event in Exodus chapter 20. When he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and he said, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." My prayer is that we as Christians and as a church, we would not be trying to make God in our image to worship a preconceived notion of who he is, but through the study of his word, we would realize who he actually is and live out that image in our lives. Let's do this. Let's take one minute. Take one minute and write down what you think God wanted you to hear this morning and how you will live differently as a result of it, and we'll conclude.